today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Six teens arrested, charged yesterday in connection with the alleged sexual assault at St. Michael's College. Uh, you know the story there. Now we're finding out about an additional, two additional uh, scenarios, one evolving an assault and one evolving a uh, a sexual assault. These are two more incidents. Uh, they've learned about these incidents in the uh, the last little while. A police spokesperson has said that one of the incidents is being investigated as assault with a weapon. The second is considered a threat. The latest, this brings to six the number of cases being investigated by police at St. Michael's College. Uh, a Roman Catholic school that teaches grades 7 to 12. To talk more about all of this, and uh, and obviously the college has come under scrutiny on how they have handled uh, all of this. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, public relations consultant, Huffington Post, Canada.com. You can see, see her stuff in, and as well, principal at Alyssa Freeman PR. She is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, Scott. What are your thoughts on when this started to unravel? What were your first thoughts? Okay, I think that you've just said a very important word, and the word is unravel. There has been a real lack of cohesive messaging on behalf of St. Mike with all of these uh, allegations. You know, and every time I see them uh, either answer reporters' questions or yesterday in a press conference setting, the reporters keep asking, and then this is how you know that their messaging is not on track. The reporters keep asking, give us the timeline. Give us the timeline. So they're asking that for two reasons. They're asking, A, for clarification, and they're also asking, B, to try and trip him up, the principal. So this is the, this is the issue. I think that this is a school that has a long and storied history and I think what else has happened is that the lid has blown off of a Pandora's box of a very seamy and ugly side of their history that they have wanted to keep quiet for many years. It certainly, and, does, it certainly doesn't seem like an isolated incident or set of incidents now, does it? No, not at all. And, you know, when the, when the principal was asking, or the head of the school was, asked, was being asked the question, well, why didn't you report it? Well, we were still dealing with it, and with the child, which is probably the way they've always dealt with these things, whether they should have gone to the police before or not, but they came to ask about another allegation. So this speaks to, you know, the school's absolute inability to control and also to appropriately deal with these situations as they arise. And as a result, the message is being fumbled, we're learning about more and more allegations that are happening. I mean, how many more have come forward since, you know, the, the video became first became public? There's at least three or four more. And now some of the quote-unquote old boys are even saying, listen, I went to St. Mike's 30 years ago and not much has changed. So this whole containment of a separate culture in a school where bad behavior has been condoned and or brushed under the rug is going to happen no more. How do you go from stellar institution where there's nothing like this to all of a sudden, oh, we have a case here. Oh, my goodness, there's another, there's another. These are horrific and they keep coming. How do you, how do you keep that secret? Well, they have been for a number of years, and I'm speculating they have been, but it's not really speculation, Scott, because now that we keep hearing 
that more and more cases are happening, which is very endemic of when something like this happens. You know, you get exposure to something uh, that's been swept under the rug for many years, and then suddenly somebody feels emboldened or free or brave enough to speak up. So, you know, I feel that St. Mike's has been operating in a, in a separate universe or a parallel universe, and they have a certain set of mores and principles on how they deal with these type of incidents. But they got caught. And it's a wonder they haven't been caught before because we live in a world of social media where, you know, your whole world can change on a dime. And with, you know, the click of a button or somebody sharing, it, it's uncontrollable, number one. And the fact that they are just putting best practices into place to deal with these issues also speaks to the fact that they've never even thought of having best practices or protecting their students before because maintaining the reputation of a $20,000 a year school is paramount. Uh, I'm going to say something very politically incorrect here. Do you see parallels with the Catholic Church? There's abuse, then there's cover-up. Can we deny? Wow. Can we deny yeah. this? Can we deny this? This is well, a culture. Nobody has said that before, Scott. But you make a valid point. And the Catholic Church has had hundreds of years of of denying that. We're still waiting for them to pony up for the residential school stuff. Come on, this has been going on forever. So you know, you know, one could say that this this act is more uh, based in history and has historical precedents because nobody is ever willing to admit to anything until your feet are absolutely held to the fire. And with the Catholic Church, you know, like there was that movie Spotlight, there were more uh, revelations um, that happen every year. And every time they happen, I think, still, you know, so... But when you, you know, see something like this, and then the cover-up, and, and, and what we're seeing unravel in for, before us right now, I mean, my goodness, how can you ignore this? Well, you can't ignore this, and this is becoming the reputational damage. If we can, you know, we'll stay with St. Mike's right now because, you know, the Catholic Church is a little bit hard to tackle at this point, but the reputational, to Saint, uh, reputational damage to St. Mike's will continue as long as they, not, as they continue to not pony up to their transgressions or their lack of action in these, in these situations. And even when I was watching that press conference yesterday, I honestly could not keep the story straight. And it was if the head of the school, the principal, was like, well, I'm only going to tell you this much, and I don't really think you need to know the rest. Whereas clear communication, I don't think I've even heard a proper apology, Scott, to be quite, in, to be quite honest. I mean, I've heard that we care about their students, that, you know, we feel terrible. But honestly... Their messaging is so oblique that reporters still are sort of creating their own timeline and keep asking that question about the timeline that I still think there's more to come. Uh, I found it fascinating early on in this uh, in this whole ordeal when all of the information hadn't broke yet that the uh, the principal was saying that he had recommended people students not to wear their uniforms 
on on public transit for fear of of I don't know uh, people calling them names, abuse of some sort. And I, and the first thing I thought of as soon as he said that is like you're covering your rear end here. You don't want any reporter coming up to that kid and saying, "Hey, is everything okay at St. Mike's? What's going on? What's your experience?" It just it just smelled of a massive cover up the first second it started. Well, you know, hearing that really just makes my head spin. And and typically, I'm you know, I'm wondering how fast they actually sought counsel before they decided internally that this was too big for them to handle. And I think that when you bring in crisis communications counsel, you, you know, you're, you're really sort of at your wit's end, but it seems like they're not willing to tell the whole truth. And the fact that they give this, you know, explanation and they tell these kids don't wear the uniforms still speaks to that sort of very internal and secular type of thinking where if this is the way they're protecting their reputation, then honestly, they're going about it in the wrong way. It was, I mean, like, some of the, it was like some of the parents that turned on the reporters. It's like they didn't want the reporters there. It's like the reporters are exposing this story. What are you talking about? They're, they're almost well, just as bad, it seemed. Well, it also speaks to the parents sort of buying into this secret culture. Yeah. You know, to get into St. Mike's, when you get your son into St. Mike's, it's absolutely a big deal. They have a long and storied athletic history, and from what I've read, you know, a very sort of machismo um, sense about the, the student body. And they, they pride themselves on that. You know, they, have it. they travel internationally for various competitions. The St. Mike's Choir is well-known. You know, Scott, you can run all the way down the line on the reputational damage with this. And the lack of containment of messaging and the lack of being upfront because they feel that the public only has a right to know certain, uh, certain details is all flying back in their faces every single day because the media knows that there's more. The media is looking and talking to old students and doing their due diligence to try and find out more information. And if you can't be upfront with the media, at least as upfront in a, a, a way that is of best practices, you're only going to suffer the consequences because you cannot argue with, an, with a business that buys ink by the barrel, as once told me. I've got an interesting note from a listener. Listen to this. Tell me what your thoughts are. Uh, Dave says, sure, they tried to cover it up and they will pay for that as they should. Remember, the kids who have done these deeds should be held to account too. Let's also keep the focus on that too. We're talking about 14 and 15 year olds here. Well, you know, something like Where's the supervision? It's a boy's school. Well, you know, Scott, I mean, listen, uh, if things happen in school that you know, teachers may not know anything about to the last minute. We all know that. We all went to school. You know, I just, well, first of all, we'll never know who these boys are, but the community knows who the boys are, yeah. and people talk. So there's just not school reputational damage, there's family reputational damage, there's son reputational damage. All these kids have been expelled, and they have to get to new schools. So when you are a principal and you are suddenly faced with a family looking to, let's say, enrolled in the public school system, and they're going to ask the question, well, where were they before? 
you know, I don't know if a, a public school can actually reject a student, but, you know, these kids are going to not just have to suffer going through courts for their actions, but also personally and perhaps even later professionally suffer for what happened. How do you think this also plays out in the public uh, in the public court of opinion that these these people are raising our future leaders? These aren't average kids here, as you said, twenty thousand dollars a pop for the year for the for the education. These people are walking out. They're not working. They're not going into factories unless they're unless they're owning them or running them. What does this say to future leadership? Well, you know, I'd like to bring up a point here that I found rather interesting in that one of the reporters at this press conference asked if any of these kids were subsidized students. And, I, and you know, you bring up the fact that they're all from privileged families and that they should know better. And I thought that that reporter's question was really classist. Uh, I, I actually couldn't believe that it was asked. The principal did answer and say, you know, that's private information, as the reporter would well know. But, you know, I guess what they're trying to point out is, is that not, you know, kids who are of good families would never deign to do such a thing. So perhaps it was a kid that mm. was of uh, wow. a poor socioeconomic class, first of all. Well, at least it now can be ruled out. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I, I guess. There's one so. way to look at it. What about the yeah. price of an education there? Just gone down? Well, you know what? I'd be interested to see what the attrition rate is. I mean, I think that there will be some families that are stalwarts that will stand by the school and say that we can, you know, help make things better. Um, I think that where they will suffer is in their incoming classes. And a lot of private schools in Toronto have indeed suffered because economically people just can't, you know, afford twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars a year. However, the proof will be in the pudding in, in, as to the future. I mean, there might be some kids that will pull, but I think that the real the real impact will be felt in the incoming class. Here's an interesting note from somebody who attended. Uh, Mr. Thompson, I attended St. Mike's and I graduated in the early 90s. I have also known very well several people who also graduated since then. This culture you speak of is completely BS. St. Mike's had initiation rituals similar to any other schools which involved embarrassing the Niners at worst. During my time there, I never experienced nor have I ever witnessed or even heard of anything that comes close to the brutal assault now assaults, I guess, that occurred last week and neither have my alumni contacts that I've spoken recently with. The boys who have been charged were 14 or 15 years old. A culture of hazing does not get instilled until grade 8 or grade 9. Teaching goodness, discipline, and knowledge begins at home, period. There were bad apples who attended there in my day, and there certainly are bad apples today. These kids obviously have more going on than simply acting out a perceived culture. Your articles is not based on fact and is irresponsible. Well, I'm glad that this person, whoever it is, believes and is apologizing for the hazing culture, which I find abominable, to be quite honest. You know, just because something happens, that there is a culture that you embarrass the Niners or the grade Niners, that that is, that is part of, you know, going to St. Mike's. I, you know, I just can't even wrap my head around it. Yeah. Any type of hazing that is meant to make somebody feel bad 
um, and suffer is is inappropriate at any time. That being and said, I think I what his point. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No. Go ahead. And I cannot abide by the phrase. Well, you know, we've always done it. It's it's just happened. We've always done it. Or boys will be boys. You know, those sort of apologist phrases need to be 100% erased from, you know, from our language. And I think what he's trying to say, though, to Alyssa is, and, and, and I'm not speaking for him, I don't pretend to, is that, you know, there's, hazing is one thing, whether it's good or bad, uh, and most would say it's bad, but this is rape. I mean, there's a difference between bullying, uh, hazing, and sexual assault or rape, and this is rape. This is a criminal act. Uh, regardless, Scott, regardless, this behavior has been condoned by the school for all these years. Yeah. Whether it was a hazing, whether it was rape, whether it was whatever, it has been condoned by the school and as a part of their culture. And that does not jive with what the, you know, the rest of us feel when we send our kids to school. I did not send my kid off to high school thinking that, well, you know, she's going to have to endure you know, a rough few months because she's young and she's just going to have to put up with it. No, no. You cannot create a division between what one perceives as bullying and, and create sort of a, a, a scale to extremes from zero to ten as to how bad a, a, a culture has to be before you, before you condone it. And the fact that St. Mike's is now, just now, putting in an anonymous tip line, they're not going to say how they're dealing mm. with it, mind you. They're just putting in an anonymous tip line. All right. But I got to cut it off there, Alyssa. We are plumb out of time. Thank you so oh. much for yours. Always appreciate it. <laughs> You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The former Prime Minister, Stephen Harper, made an appearance on the Ben Shapiro Show. Uh, this is a podcast, and uh, this guy, former uh, editor with Breitbart News, and uh, considered very right-wing by, by many. Uh, but the uh, Prime Minister made some interesting comments, uh, including comments on Ill- uh, illegal immigration and how that is changing people's attitude on immigration. Let's bring in Giddy Maman, senior partner, founder at Maman Sandalock Kingwell LLP. He is an immigration lawyer and with us now. Giddy, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. So the Prime Minister says in this article in the Post uh, that he has no time for illegal, illegal immigration because it turns people against legal immigration, which is a boon for the economy and potential uh, um, positive for the Conservative Party. Valid point that he's making here? Uh, he is making a valid point. I would say it was a bit, uh, a little bit clumsily stated. But yes, generally speaking, uh, prime ministers and leaders don't want to deal with illegal immigration. But the truth is, if you're in a Western country, you're going to have to deal with it. So, um, you know, you do the best you can with it. But I think what, what he's trying to say uh, is that if you have a situation where the optics are and the public is feeling that uh, the system is being abused, there will be a natural reaction to that, which will be negative. So uh, Canadians, for example, don't mind helping refugees. But when Canadians feel they're being overwhelmed by refugees or they're being uh, taken advantage of by refugees, they will start to clam up and start to have hardened positions against that. And that, of course, will create um, um, push factors on the government 
to do something about it. And so he's saying, look, uh, you know, uh, too much even of a good thing is, is, is maybe not necessarily good for the country. What can government do to prevent that from happening, from preventing that view from spreading? Well, right now, uh, a majority of Canadians are concerned about what's happening at the border in Canada, for example, that we have a border that doesn't appear to be uh, defended, that people are coming in unchallenged, and it appears that we are uh, underwriting the cost of cleaning up uh, the immigration mess in the United States. That is going to create very negative feelings uh, for many uh, average Canadians, and we can see that a majority of people just simply think that um, uh, too many are coming over. Uh, what can we do? Well, we can start enforcing the border. Uh, we can start handling this, the situation in a way to deter uh, this. If you remember under Stephen Harper's um, uh, regime, um, there was a mass immigration movements that came in from the West Coast. There were two boats that came with uh, uh, Tamil refugees, and what they did is they were very hard on them. They detained them uh, in order to uh, discourage other people from following suit. And by and large, I think they succeeded. You know, one could argue about whether or not that was a, that was a fair tactic, but at least the public got to see uh, that we're not going to have uh, a huge inflow of boats arriving on our shores. And since then, we really haven't had any. In your opinion, are we handling this? Do we have a handle on this? Uh, I don't. I think uh, the the refugees themselves are uh, in control of our refugee program, not the government. I, I don't think the government has control of this at all. And you can see that in the United States. I think that our uh, the United Nations Convention on Refugees, which was uh, you know uh, drafted and, and signed and executed in 1951, needs a serious uh, a rethink. Uh, it's very much overdue. You take a look at what's happening in the United States. The idea in 1951, when commercial air travel wasn't so uh, popular, that anybody who appears on your shore needs and deserves a hearing. Uh, now, when you see people coming, for example, by the thousands uh, to the U.S. border uh, in caravans, uh, somebody has to rethink the, the refugee policy there. And Canadians are also asking themselves, why do we have uh, holes in the fence where people just walk in from the United States. Some of them may be refugees, but many of them are not. And why do we have to um, uh, underwrite the expense uh, of those who are not? So I, I, I really think that we need to have a serious, not just national, but international discussion as to how to um, deal with people who are legitimately fleeing persecution. Um, and maybe we need to move to a more local solution than what is happening right now. Uh, but bringing people, for example, all the way from Syria to Canada uh, and people from uh, all of South America to Canada to uh, address their, their concerns of persecution may not be the most economic or the, most, um, uh, the, the, the best uh, outcome for the long term in any event. We were talking about uh, former Prime Minister Stephen Harper's comments. Uh, he has no time for illegal immigration, but uh, of course, the legal system uh, he open he he welcomes with open arms. Is this too broad a view to have in today's times? Can that does that apply here? As you said, times have changed. When this was drawn up, things were a lot different. Look, uh, there's no question that immigration produces positive results for Canada. There's no question that we need uh, certain skill sets, both at the high level 
and at the lower level uh, in order to make our economy, our economy function and to make us more competitive. There's no question about that. And I think Stephen Harper, during the time that he was prime minister, his numbers, his uh, annual immigration numbers were actually quite high. Um, uh, I recall when I was doing the research at that time, he outperformed the, the, the liberal regime that preceded him in terms of actual numbers. Um, the problem is on the other end, not the ones, the ones that we are selecting, that doesn't seem to be a problem. It's the ones that we're not really selecting. Those are, those are the groups that are selecting themselves. And uh, that's not in our national interest. In our national interest, we should be deciding who we select for professional reasons, for business investor reasons, and we should be also the ones to select who comes in here uh, escaping uh, persecution. Um, and if you don't do that, the public is simply going to stop supporting the refugee program, and then we're going to have a real problem. Uh, a recent poll by Angus Reid Institute found that 65% of Canadians believe that uh, 31,000 regular border crossings since 2017 is too many people for Canada to handle. You used the word appearance earlier on. Uh, what about the Prime Minister's role in this? Is he making it appear that it's a lot more loosey-goosey than what it is? The uh, Our current Prime Minister? Yes, uh, I think the current prime minister has his uh, head in the sand on this. I don't know that he knows how how to get out of it, because the numbers are going to continue to climb. Um, as the situation in the United States um, unravels, uh, there's going to be increased pressure on our southern border. Uh, and I think what's probably happening is that our prime minister is not going to make any major policy changes um, you know, until maybe the next election. Uh, right now, I don't think he can turn his policy around. His position is that everybody here is welcome. Uh, anybody who crosses the fence uh, can can come in and, and, and make a refugee claim. What we know as a fact is that those 65% of Canadians are actually correct. The Immigration Refugee Board cannot handle these numbers. Uh, you know, right uh, yesterday I saw a person who's been waiting uh, almost eight years for a refugee hearing. The people that are coming in today are going to be here for two, three, four years at the very late least in a system that was supposed to have been much more expeditious than the old system. Uh, and what that is doing is that is encouraging more people to come here, whether or not they have legitimate claims, because they know that they won't be removed for a number of years. So more and more come. So that 65% of Canadians are correct, that our system cannot handle it. We also know that the the shelters that we have uh, are being completely overwhelmed. The government has to, you know, hire, um, has to rent uh, college dorms in the summertime in order to house these people. So uh, it's being overwhelmed, and, and uh, I don't think that the, that the Prime Minister is even attempting to come up with uh, some changes to our policies to, to address it. Will this backfire for him? Is he turning Canadians off of immigration? Uh, I think I think he is. I, I really believe that the average Canadian welcomes uh, immigration, even at higher levels. Well, most of us are. I mean, we all have stories, right? I mean, we're you know we're all I'm first. I'm an immigrant. Se- my parents were immigrants. Yeah. Uh, my profession is about bringing immigrants to Canada, but I don't uh, I don't uh, stand for anarchy, and I don't stand for unlimited immigration uh, by anybody who chooses to come here. Uh, Canada 
is a nation state. It has borders. Those borders have to be respected. And we have to participate in the international effort to resettle people who are persecuted. Uh, as long as Canadians feel that they're in the driver's seat, everything is going to work out well. But if Canadians all of a sudden get pushed too hard and they see the bills, which are going to be coming in soon, over the next couple of years, we're going to have an idea of what this is all costing us. When they see that, they're going to say, heck no, uh, let's get out of this business. And that is extraordinarily dangerous because when people start saying that uh, this is too much, they may go even further and say, you know what, none is too many. We've heard that already in our, in our country, and, and we don't want to hear that again. Uh, Canadians have to feel that they're in control of their, uh, of their, uh, their, their budgets, their charity, and that's what refugee, um, refugee resettlement is all about, is a charitable exercise. We want to help people for altruistic reasons. We want to help them escape harm. And Canadians are willing to do that. But if they see every night on TV people streaming into Canada uh, without limit and streaming into the United States without limit and possibly ending up in Canada, they're going to get fed up with the whole thing. And I think that's the message that Stephen Harper was trying to get out. And, I, and, and with that message, I agree. Giddy, as we mentioned, you're an immigration lawyer. Your job is to help people come to this country doing it legally. What do your clients say about this? Well, it's interesting. How frustrated are they? The clients who have come here and who've gone through, you know, jumped all the, through all the hoops and paid all the legal fees and paid all the government fees and waited patiently are now saying, I don't know why I bothered to do that. Yeah. I mean, you know, it just seems silly. And the ones who are coming to us and saying, look, do you have a solution for us staying here? And the solution that I'm offering is tedious. It's time-consuming. It's uh, complicated. And they say, well, you know, I'm watching TV, and I've got an, an alternative uh, to what you're proposing. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a tough, it's a tough thing to answer. Why should I bother doing it the right way? When I all I have to do is take a, a, a bus to Roxham Road, uh, come into the country uh, at the fence, and I could be here for years working on a work permit within uh, within days, and it's hard to answer that. Uh, what are your thoughts on what's happening with the United States and the chatter of the caravan leading up to the midterms, and now the fact that it seems that it, the troops that were put there to protect uh, America from the caravan is now being dismantled or they're being sent home before the caravan even arrives? How does that play into all of this? Well, I think um, you have a, a president in the United States uh, who doesn't sort of dodge issues. He takes them, uh, takes them on uh, head-on. And right now, Canada, the United States, and many Western countries have basically signed a blank check uh, with the United Nations Convention on uh, Refugees, which basically says that anybody who comes to your shore, you have to let them in and let them make a refugee claim. And if they're successful, you've got to let them stay. And if they're not successful, uh, you can send them home. Uh, if this, if these images were being broadcast in 1951, I would venture to say that very few countries would have actually signed the document uh, because they're seeing uh, people coming that don't appear in many cases to be refugees. Uh, they appear to be economic migrants, and they're being foisted upon these nations. So when Donald Trump tried to stop them from making 
refugee claims between uh, proper uh, border points, the court said you can't do that. And, and the court is legally right, because we've signed an agreement that says when they come to your border, anywhere at the border, you've got to take them in and give them a hearing. And so Donald Trump now, knowing that, probably doesn't need an army standing there, because um, I'm sure all of his legal advisors are going to tell him, unless you unsign the U.N. Convention and change domestic U.S. law on this point, you're going to have to suck it up. And so I think this is going to trigger a tremendous... Uh, discussion on the international stage um, by countries who are going to try to figure out really version 2.0 of the international uh, refugee resettlement program, which is the UN uh, the, the UN 1951 convention. How is this problem solved? Um, as you said, this is not going away, and 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 before you know it, these people will eventually arrive at their destination. What happens then? Well, if you're speaking about these specific people in this caravan, they're all entitled to make a refugee claim at the U.S. border. That means all of them legally are allowed to enter the country. And if another 10,000 or 50,000 or 100,000 or 200,000 show up, legally the United States has to take them in and give them all hearings. Of course, that will break down the American uh, capability for processing refugees, which will have the same effect as it's having in Canada. That means people will be sitting and sitting and sitting and sitting, waiting years for a refugee hearing, and you can't remove them until they have their hearing. Um, and what that's going to do is it's going to create a vicious cycle. That means uh, the more, the longer it takes to deal with these hearings, the more people will be attracted to the United States. And I don't think Donald Trump is going to be able to, uh, is, is going to want that situation to continue. The question is whether now after the midterms he has the clout, the legislative clout, to uh, change uh, American law and policy uh, to somehow limit the number of uh, refugees or the manner in which they come into the United States to make a claim. As you mentioned, will this start a world discussion once this caravan arrives at a U.S. border? Will Will, just out of necessity, we have to discuss this? I mean, you know, at the end of the day, you either have to bring them in or you have to fix where they came from so they can return. Right. So I don't think the United States has the appetite right now or the budget to start fixing uh, South America. Uh, We have an agreement uh, with the United States, uh, the Safe Third Country Agreement, which protects the border um, between Canada and the United States. They may need to enter into a similar agreement with Mexico, um, but that also th- there are challenges to that. The underlying problem is that we have this international commitment since 1951 to take as many people that show up on our borders. I'm sure Canada and the United States anticipate at that time that they're far away removed from the hot spot of Europe, where it seems every world war starts and where all these conflicts come from. Uh, and so we're insulated from masses of uh, a refugee uh, uh, resettlement problems. But now, again, because you see through commercial uh, air, you know, it's so accessible to so many people that they can come, they can arrive in Mexico or South America, and all they have to do is move their way north, uh, and they arrive first in the states, and then, if desired, if the if they believe their chances are better, uh, further north into Canada. 
And, uh, you know, what we Canadians need to think about is this, that our refugee system is much more generous than the American system. So anybody who shows up in the United States making a refugee claim, um, who's not sure if he's going to win or he's going to lose, may have a, a serious interest in foregoing a U.S. refugee claim and coming to Canada and making mm. a refugee claim here. And so what's happening in the United States is very, very, very much connected to what's going to happen in Canada. Do you think we'll th- see a third-party uh, agreement the same uh, way that we have with Canada and the United States with Mexico? I, I don't think that that would be in the... Uh, that wouldn't be an effective agreement because you can see the agreement between Canada and the United States is not effective. Right. The whole idea... Not at this of, time, anyway, yeah. Yeah, the, the whole purpose of the safe, country, uh, safe third country agreement was uh, to prevent um, uh, refugees uh, in the United States from coming to Canada. That was the interest of Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, what was happening is people were making refugee claims in the United States, and they were finding it difficult to succeed. So what they did is they said, okay, well, now that I've lost, I'm going to go to Canada, and, and I'm going to take a second kick at the can. Right. That's, that was the, 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 the driving force. But, but they made an exception for um, uh, points between uh, proper checkpoints. So you, all you have to do is go between the checkpoints, mm. and if no one's going to enforce it, the agreement simply disappears. And uh, So I don't think that that same agreement is going to work um, any better with the United States and Mexico. They, they would have to have the safer country agreement applying right across the border from end to end. But that would that would possibly solve the problems, at least for for a little while, uh, in the United States. I'm not sure how the Supreme Court of the United States would ultimately dispose of uh, such an agreement. See if it's consistent with uh, domestic law. But uh, that's another that's another discussion. Giddy Maman has been with us, senior partner Maman and Sandaluck Kingwell LLP. He is an immigration lawyer. Giddy, thanks for the time. As always, much appreciated. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Doug Ford's PCs have had some interesting uh, few days with some controversy. Uh, I guess that's common or maybe not, depending on who you ask, uh, whether it has been involving... Um, uh, gender identity issues, whether it's Francophone University or uh, Ford and Shear and uh, his relationship with, uh, there's lots of chatter in regard to this. Let's bring in Christo Avalis, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council Postdoctoral Fellow in History at the University of Toronto and is with us now. Christo, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. Uh, first of all, your thoughts on the whole gender uh, gender identity uh, uh, situation that came up over the weekend. This was at their convention. I, I guess conventions are a, a time when uh, all aspects of the party get to uh, have their say in how they move forward. Uh, that being said, the premier uh, pretty much quashed this uh, pretty quickly. Your thoughts on all of this? I mean, yeah, the way these, these things often work is that, you know, uh, periodically, usually every couple of years, parties will meet. Uh, to uh, talk about policy, talk about leadership. Um, in this particular case, it's always very interesting when the governing party uh, meets to, cause, because you kind of have a sense that, you know, this is maybe more immediately actionable as policy. In this particular case, I think this was very controversial. I don't think it's in line with what most Ontarians believe, even if they, for instance, 
don't like the whole pronoun debate. Maybe they side with Jordan Peterson on that particular issue. Maybe this goes too far. And I think the government received a lot of backlash. So it's not surprising that they, they went against this. And that's not exactly uncommon because, you know, it's often the case that, you know, something will end up in a party's policy book, but won't actually be touched by government. I mean, for instance, you know, we've just now legalized marijuana, but it's been in the Liberal Party's, party's policy book uh, on and off, at least since the 1970s, um, and it, it's only implemented now. So, for instance, you know that 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 it could be concerning to people. Is this what the governing party believes? But the government, at least right now, seems unwilling to actually put its stamp on it. You know, at the caucus and cabinet level, are we confusing ideas with policy? I mean, you know, it it doesn't matter if it's federal or provincial or what the party stripe is. Whenever they have these conventions, it seems that we we generate towards the extreme views as opposed to those that that, that are on the floor right now. Use the example of, of of marijuana. That's a great example of of something that's been talked about for an awfully long time before we got here. Are we spending too much time, or is that politics now? in those extreme issues and, and things that probably won't see the light of day. Well, you know, or, or is it good to know that that's that the, those feelings are in the party too? I mean, I think, I think it's important. I think it's important to be transparent and have these discussions. I think parties always try to strike a balance. You want members to feel engaged, like they have a kind of say in the party and its direction. Yet you also want to limit potential, you know, un, you know, unforced errors, if you will. And it can be very difficult, for instance, if the party wants to portray a certain vision, you know, at the leadership level, let's say a party wants to portray itself as as being, you know, not too socially conservative in this case. And then they find themselves with this resolution, even if they don't apply. Uh, let's let's be generous to them and say that, you know, they had no intention ever of implementing this. It could still hurt them. And it does levy the accusation, fair or not that maybe they would have implemented this if the backlash had not been so sudden and kind of unanimous against it, kind of outside that room, um, it, it creates that real difficulty. So I think that it, it's important to have these discussions, but I think I can understand why parties are reluctant to do so, uh, especially, again, especially when they are in power, because uh, fair or not, the party policy conventions are basically seen as a discussion of the government. How do you balance all of this? Because obviously there's some issues that uh, that could be ca- that can be quite divisive. And again, this, this goes pretty much for any any stripe. You've got issues from some extremism in, in the party that that you know may not bode well with the public, but yet are, are worth discussing. How how do you encourage the discussion? Because I guess that the debate's good to have, but also balance it so people don't uh, interpret it as as a mainstream idea within your party. Well, there's a couple things. One, you can do what the what the what the cabinet has done, which is to say, you know, we don't really stand by this to kind of give it a sense that, look, there there is party democracy. But there's also what we feel is we have a responsibility as a government or let's say you're a party that's trying to form government. So we reject that kind of notion. You can do that. Another thing you can do and what a lot of parties do is it's they, 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 they have a system to prioritize the way in which resolutions come to the floor, because as these things work, you'll never have enough time to actually discuss all of the kind of resolutions submitted. You usually only have a couple days and there might be hundreds, if not more resolutions submitted. So parties can, in a sense, tip the scale. And this is always very controversial. All parties do it to ensure that maybe the resolutions they want to see debated get to the floor 
do get to the floor and the ones that can be potentially divisive within the party or be seen as perhaps controversial to the electorate more broadly, they try to limit. Now, of course, that's never perfect. Um, there are systems where members can move things up and down the resolutions list and things like this do get to the floor. But, the, you know, the, the parties do have mechanisms in place to get a lot of maybe more mom and apple pie kind of uh, kind of resolutions to the floor, uh, which which are a lot easier sells to the mainstream media. Healthy for the party, or does this create div- divisiveness, especially if there's a movement within any party that decides, you know, this issue is big for us, but uh, the leadership doesn't want any part of it for mainstream reasons, uh, and then the leader dismisses it. Does that create divisiveness, or the fact that you debated it makes it transparent? I mean, it's tricky, right? I mean, who know- in this particular case, who knows? I mean, I think on the one hand, you know, having these discussions, they're going to happen regardless. Um, you know, it, it, will people, you know, be so mad at this particular decision that they're that they plan to leave the pro- progressive conservatives? I mean, I don't know. You know, it's not as if there's a, you know, a ready made alternative for them at this stage. Um, you know, if federally, for instance, does this have an effect? That's that's an important thing to note. Is this healthy for the party? I mean, this is more the government decision, but whether it's, you know, canceling the francophone, uh, you know, uh, university, that's going to have some effects on. Uh, the, the federal conservatives potentially, when it's a perception of what the conservative party more broadly means to Franco-Ontarians, that could have a major effect. But in terms of, uh, you know, what, what are the what are the the healthiness of the party? I think this is just par for the course. And I think really, if you look at any party convention, um, there's always kind of controversial re- resolutions that come up. Um, and and I don't think this is necessarily too different. Although, you know, this seen, being seen as an attack on a certain marginalized group's human rights kind of raises the stakes. Uh, on the issue of the Francophone University, uh, Doug Ford said his government, this is out of the CBC, ha- uh, and uh, and his government had to pull its funding from a planned Francophone University that Quebec's newly elected premier understands why, addressing the media after the two got together. Obviously, they want unity when it comes to things like carbon tax. How do these issues, how do you decide or pick and choose what issues to to, to represent and, and what not to. How does Ford balance this? He's obviously realizing it's a bit of a, a cakewalk here. Yeah, well, yeah, it, it's, 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 it's tricky, right? Because I think that, and, and maybe, again, this government did not have a platform, or if they did, they were not forthcoming with it. So a lot of these decisions, maybe we're assuming they're a bit more off the cuff than we might see from a majority government that's got a very detailed platform of what it wants to do over the next four years. You got so You bring up know. a very good point. We didn't really know any of this was coming, so no, I guess exactly. people are surprised. The government has no mandate for some of these very major changes. Yeah. It's quite concerning, frankly. The, the reality is that in this case, it could have very negative effects. And while the Quebec Premier is sort of doing a favor to Doug Ford by not criticizing him, and there's a lot of anger in Quebec on this issue, um, the reality, though, is that this could have deep effects on Andrew Scheer uh, in the coming election. If, the, if there's a perception that Scheer and Ford are close, and at least on the carbon tax issue, they are. And if there's a sense that Scheer either doesn't criticize Ford enough or that even if he does criticize Ford behind the scenes, he agrees with him, it's going to make it very difficult to, to hold on to the few seats that uh, Scheer already has in Quebec and certainly will make it difficult for him to chip into that big liberal lead in Quebec. Is it up to Ford to prop up Scheer? Uh, Ford's response to this was, well, we canceled other uh, university projects as well. Does, does that hold water? 
I mean, to a certain degree, I mean, it, it, it depends what your philosophy is. I mean, if you believe that it, you, you have, you know, you're governing your province and you want to do what's in the best interest of your province, whether or not it is in the best interest, then yeah, there's to a certain degree, you got to look out for your province. That's the people who elected you. Um, but there's also a sense that if you believe in this movement, if you believe in a movement of, say, conservative values, small C conservative values, then you would want to kind of portray a vision that doesn't necessarily hamstring your fellow people in other provinces. And that's always balancing those two. That's quite important um, in terms of, you know, does it, pet, does it pass water? I mean, to some degree, perhaps, if you argue again that Ford uh, is canceling other universities, you could say this is not explicitly the attack on Franklin Terrence, but there's also the closing of the, the kind of advisory and watchdog right. committees about the Franco and Terrans. And I think that's, again, that's a deep concern. And, and I think that uh, it's, it, it, it's, again, it's, it's a big change. It's a big change. And it's the kind of change early enough in a government where if you're making it, you really should have ran on it. You really, I, I, I don't think a lot of people are buying Ford's, oh no, the deficit's worse than we thought. We have to make these extra cuts. The, they were already deficit fear-mongering before the election. It's really not that much worse to justify the kind of changes being made. So it comes off as quite cynical, and it comes off as, as targeting a historical minority population in the country. Uh, many have commented that uh, Doug Ford is spending too much time on federal issues, spending too much time talking about the Prime Minister, too much time hanging out with uh, Andrew Scheer. It's got to the point where some have assumed that he's going to become uh, Prime Minister. Should we confuse Ford's uh, interest in carbon tax and such with the political ambition that he wants to become uh, Prime Minister, or is he just doing his due diligence here? I mean, it's always a balance. I mean, like like most like 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 you know, a lot of premiers who like uh, who form government, one of their responsibilities they often take in cabinet is to become you know minister of intergovernmental affairs. So, in a sense, part of his cabinet responsibilities is to you know deal with issues of the, of the federal at the federal level and, and work with the government. I think for Ford, one of his key issues, one of the f- things he did run on, he ran on very few things. One of them was the carbon tax. So perhaps he feels he has a responsibility and a mandate to, to fight that, to fight on that issue. Um, and I think that, you know, him targeting Trudeau, at least I think is, is, is part of, um, it juxtaposes him to Trudeau. And as perhaps he feels that that's key to kind of maintaining and energizing his base, maybe helping with fundraising. He can send out emails to, to say, look, I'm the one fighting Trudeau. In terms of whether or not, you know, this is him angling towards federal power. I mean, some people have talked about that. There was a liberal cabinet minister who basically said that, you know, he needs to pay more attention to Queen's Park and less to Parliament Hill. But I mean, I I don't see that happening right now. Certainly, uh, it would be rather unprecedented for him to to, to leave before his government is up. That's not until 2022, maybe maybe a little bit earlier, but not until about 2022. Uh, Scheer is the leader of the Conservative Party now. And until, you know, I, I would say at least until 2019, uh, we, I don't know if you can make any assumptions. Uh, you can say right now that the polls look good for the Liberals and maybe Scheer would be forced out after one term. But um, elections can change uh, things quite rapidly so I don't know if Ford's immediate ambition is to be prime minister, although Ford is relatively young and it's not impossible, I suppose, to see him become prime minister. But again, it would be difficult, again, with his attacks on francophones now to make that move. Uh, a historic Ontario premier, George Drew, rather popular in Ontario, 
um, but a deeply, deeply controversial figure with Francophones, uh, found great difficulty uh, reaching out to Quebec when he became federal part, federal PC leader in the 1950s. How much of an advantage is Ford to Shear? Uh, him hanging out with them, uh, meeting each other, uh, holding the arms up in, in victory and such. Uh, who, who does this relationship better benefit? Oh, it's, a, it's a tricky one. I think, I think, it, I think for Shear it helps in a sense that, you know, he's, he was kind of nobody's first choice. Yeah. So maybe being associated with Ford helps him with the kind of Ford-type wing of the party. Um, but I actually think in some ways, at least sheer being associated with Ford might be a negative. Ford is deeply unpopular, like deeply unpopular for a new, for a new leader. It's only our broken electoral system that, that puts him in the position he's in. And the reality though, is that, you know, sheer can himself hope for, you know, 38% of the vote, giving him 100% of the power. Christo, but, Christo, here we are talking about the, the broken electoral system that's been broken forever and, and elects all the past leaders. Can we go there? Yeah. No, well, yeah, no, but what I'm saying, though, is that if, if you look at Doug Ford, you, you would say, oh, he's got a majority government. He must be a pretty popular guy. But then two-thirds of Ontarians don't like him, and I'm guessing that's generally a trend across the country. Is it really helpful for Andrew Scheer, who's not necessarily an unpopular guy, to be, to be fair right now, associating himself with a guy who's quite unpopular? Put it another way, um, you know, is it helpful for a Republican right now to be seen with Donald Trump in a general sense, and I would say probably not. So Sheer might be able to raise some money by being, you know, associated with the Ford high energy, high like emotion power. It is helpful to have a provincial ally on the carbon tax front, but I don't think he's as good. And unlike, let's say, Premier Mo from Saskatchewan, who is quite popular, um, Ford has a lot of personal liabilities that, that don't necessarily come from some of the other anti-carbon tax premiers. What about uh, Shear's image? He's kind of a quieter, more family kind of a guy. Uh, obviously, the prime minister, although older, seems younger in many ways. Uh, does hanging out with a Ford, you know, put a bit of an edge to that, to that, uh, you know, guy next door persona? Or is, you know, considering where we are, is that guy next door persona what is needed right now? Yeah, I mean, it, that, that's, that's an interesting point. Like, what are Canadians looking for the next election? Again, we have three-party leaders. They're all very young in, in, in historical terms. Sheer and Singh are basically the same age. I believe they're both 38, 39 now. Um, and, and Trudeau is obviously still in his 40s and, and appears much younger in, his, in how he looks and in how he acts. Um, as you note, some people might mistake Trudeau for being a bit younger than Sheer. Yeah. Um, and that wouldn't be unreasonable. In terms of Sheer's you know, value, again, I think that fits one of the reasons he won the leadership is he's, he's not an offensive figure at all. And I think that really helped him. Now, will that be something Canadians want? I think it'll help him in a sense, because maybe some people concerned about conservative politics and concerned about the way somebody like a Ford or a Trump talks, which is very aggressive, very abrasive, potentially, sees maybe a more mild-mannered sheer might seem less threatening. Maybe to say women voters that are increasingly concerned about conservative politics, maybe someone like Andrew Scheer could appeal to them. But again, in a, in a time where Trudeau is very flashy and you have, again, a very passionate leader in Jagmeet Singh, who's got a lot of youthful energy, well, how does Scheer differentiate himself? Maybe Ford's association helps. But again, I, I, in my view, again, if, you, if he needs provincial allies on the carbon tax front, uh, you can get that from Saskatchewan. 
and you don't get nearly the personal liabilities and scandals that you're getting from Doug Ford. So I don't know if I see that as a value for Andrew Scheer right now. Christo Avalis has been with us, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, postdoctoral fellow in History, University of Toronto. Christo, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.